Hello and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Gastola, and I'm joined by the show's other co-host, Rania Kalik. Hello. Hey, Kevin. And this week, we're very pleased to welcome as our guest, Bara Shaban, who is a human rights activist and the project coordinator for Reprieve. And he is based in Yemen. So for the show, we'll be talking about uh, some of the latest developments in Yemen. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. I want to talk about what's happening with the Houthis, and I also want to talk about um, what's happening with the, the latest political turmoil. But uh, I think our initial interest in, in having you on um, is also about the ongoing, um, the role of the United States and the, the ongoing drone strikes that continue. And so just um, to bring our listeners up to speed, I'm just going to give a quick recap that in the past Eight days, there have been at least three reported U.S. drone strikes. That one happened on January 26th, where three people were killed. That one happened on January 31st, where four people were killed. And on February 2nd, there was one that happened with three to six people killed. Um, AQAP has made some claims about their militants being killed. And then I understand that on January 26th, um, one to two civilians were reported killed, including a child. And so can you talk a little bit about what's been happening as even the political turmoil happens, the drone strikes continue? Well, I think uh, this is what is quite significant about the uh, counterterrorism efforts in, in, uh, in Yemen. Uh, that the United States always uh, uh, actually em emphasized on the fact that it's always in uh, uh, collaboration with the Yemeni government. And it has the approval of the Yemeni, uh, the Yemeni president, and there are certain uh, measures and precautions taken with the uh, Yemeni intelligence before each strike. Um, what's quite interesting that the the uh, the drone program didn't stop, uh, like it started during the days of the former president, uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, and then after the 2011 uh, revolution, uh, which forced Saleh to step down, the drone strikes didn't uh, stop and continued. And uh, now, even with the uh, with the uh, president uh, Hadi uh, resignation, the drone program also continued. It seems that the United States doesn't care if we have a government, if it is democratically uh, uh, elected, if it is representative of the people. What's going to continue is the is the drone program, whether the Yemeni people like it or not. And uh, and I think the uh, the the recent three drone strikes uh, made uh, raised to the uh, to the surface uh, many questions uh, and concerns by the Yemeni people about who actually who is approving these uh, these drone strikes and who is coordinating with them and actually uh, uh, what kind of legitimacy that the that the United States have to come into Yemen without the presence of a government. It's very clear that they don't have approval of anyone at the, at the Yemeni cabinet and, uh, and to continue uh, droning the Yemeni people. Oh, but I remember when I actually met you a, few, uh, a couple years ago um, at a drone conference in D.C., and you were talking about uh, a friend of yours that had been involved in the uprising that overthrew um, Ali Abdullah Saleh. And... Um, I think that was, what, in 2011? Um, and you mentioned that he was then later killed in a drone strike. Um, so I guess before we move on, I, I just 
I guess, could you um, kind of like recap about that and the significance of the fact that drone strikes have been killing um, not just militants, it's all, as it's always reported in the media, but actual like innocent civilians? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, the guy you're talking about here, he's an uh, he's an elementary school teacher, and in 2011 he took uh, he, he he took down to the streets with uh, with us and started uh, protesting against uh, the uh, uh, the uh, former president Ali Abdullah Saleh. And uh, during the uh, elections of Ali Abdullah Saleh, he was the one who, who used to, to, to come to Change Square holding the picture of Abdurrabbu Mansour Hadi and convincing people to, to, to participate in the, uh, in the elections. And, uh, and uh, he was trying to, to actually convince people that it's time actually to be part of the, of the system. And, 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 and this is, might be finally the only time where we have... Uh, 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 a represented, uh, a truly representative uh, uh, president. Uh, very interestingly, that after uh, after that event, one year after that, uh, after uh, uh, Ali, the elementary school teacher, was actually uh, convincing people to 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 participate in uh, in the elections, uh, Abdurrabba Mansour Hadi. Uh, did announce that he is uh, in favor of the drone program, and Ali was killed in a in a drone strike. Ali was an elementary school teacher, and during his uh, extra time, he used to uh, work on his own cab, and uh, and uh, uh, he was uh, he he picked up some uh, uh, villagers from uh, from his village, and he was killed in uh, in a in a drone strike in early 2013. So I want to ask you uh, for your views and thoughts about what has been happening with AQAP from your point of view, and, and possibly it's a different perspective than what many people get here in the United States, as in, like, the truth about, like, how these drone strikes might actually be making it, uh, like, uh, be a benefit to AQAP in the way that they are being carried out. And, and also just so maybe you can give us some context as to what's going on with the, the Houthis and how their uprising is uh, related to what AQAP is, is doing. Like I understand that AQAP is labeling the Houthis as an ally of the United States and working and cooperating with the U.S., and that's probably contributing to tensions. Well, I think the uh, the uh, the United States, since uh, uh, it witnessed the uh, uh, the Houthis' uh, uh, increase of influence in many different regions of the country, it found that uh, actually Houthis could do their part uh, of the job. Uh, Houthis could save actually uh, the United States from sending troops on the ground, and uh, can actually uh, and 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 the role of the U.S. would be just supporting them with with drones. The uh, uh, the 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 first time, which was um, this, uh, I would say, strange uh, uh, relationship, uh, occurred to the surface is in November 2014, when the Houthis expanded their military operations. Uh, into uh, the province of uh, of Al Bayda. This has, this is province has uh, has been subject to many drone strikes in the past uh, two years, and uh, the uh, the Houthis uh, started their uh, their uh, military presence uh, 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 there. 
And that's when the United States started droning heavily the, the areas. Now, whether that the people were in support of the uh, of Al Qaeda presence or not, but when they see that their that uh, their areas have been directly affected, their neighborhoods, their villages have been uh, repeatedly droned by the uh, by the United States, this creates an, an atmosphere of acceptance of Al Qaeda presence. Because simply not because we are in favor of Al Qaeda, but because simply the enemy of my enemy is my friend, um, and I think this is what the United States is not realizing in its current war against uh, against uh, terror, which is by the time you're creating more enemies than you actually started with, and if this war continued in this, I would say it, with no reevaluation of of, of the of the uh, of the process, we would end up with having more people. More tribes, more social—I uh, would say—people uh, 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 actually on the ground uh, in favor of uh, of, uh, of Al Qaeda presence, not because they support Al Qaeda, but because they have been affected because of the uh, because of the of the of the drone strikes and the efforts against terrorism. Uh, and then, for people who don't know. Uh, where this uh, faction comes from and the history behind it. Can you tell us about the rise of the Houthis? I mean, I know that they uh, have had a problem with the Yemeni government and that Ali Abdullah Saleh wanted to use American resources and funds to go after and attack them, and then the United States wanted those resources to remain focused on alleged al-Qaeda militants. Uh, but can you talk about this this uprising? Well, the Houthis started their uh, their uh, I would say uprising or their presence in uh, north of the country in 2004. Before that, I would say not many people knew about uh, knew about them or knew actually who the who the Houthis are. But uh, when uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh launched six wars against them, uh, this is when they started to uh, get more supporters uh, 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 on the ground. And um, uh, I think that's the as the as the history of any uh, of any cycle of violence. When the violence uh, and the violations uh, uh, against a specific group increases, the more supporters it uh, it uh, it receives. And for the credit, actually, of the United States, uh, at the time they did refuse to use uh, their resources against uh, against the Houthis, uh, and uh, and and simply because I think. Uh, any of the U.S. funding should not be used for the uh, for local disputes and and, and local conflicts. Uh, um, and and but I mean I think uh, by time when the Houthis started to expanding uh, expanding north, I think that's when the United States felt that maybe we can get benefit of their uh, of their uh, uh, you know uh, mutual uh, I would say. Mutual uh, enemy of having Al Qaeda as their common enemy, and use uh, their presence on the uh, on the ground. Now, I don't uh, I don't think that there is a direct coordination, but there is actually uh, some sort of an understanding that uh, we can continue keep uh, you know we can we can keep droning and 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 and, and, and striking alleged Al Qaeda militants while the Houthis taking control on the ground. Well, so right now there's like a power vacuum, right? Exactly. Yeah, we have uh, we have a president who submitted his resignation. We have a, we don't have an actually a government because the prime minister submitted his uh, his uh, resignation, 
And we have today, actually, the Houthis announcing what they call the constitutional declaration, uh, uh, simply announcing a new presidential committee taking the role of President Hadi. And so what does that mean going forward? Uh, I mean, it means uh, that the Houthis, uh, since they took control of, of, uh, of, uh, of the capital, Sana'a, in, in September, uh, there was many, actually, uh, uh, definitions of what they did. Is it a coup? Uh, is it just uh, uh, they just kick out the government and, and kept the president? But I think today it's, uh, it's I would say, uh, the formal announcement of the, uh, of the, of the coup. Uh, simply, this means that the, Houthi, that the areas uh, under the Houthis' uh, control uh, is effectively uh, under this new presidential committee. The other areas of the country is uh, under, I would say, uh, a vacuum, which uh, simply because the other, uh, like tribes in 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 Ma'rib, in Shabwa, and many other provinces, announced that they refuse, starting from today, to receive any orders coming from Sanaa, mm -hmm. and this means that they will not even allocate any of their resources or any of the taxes that they collect uh, back to the, uh, back to the capital. Uh, this might mean also that in the near future we might witness uh, a, a number of, uh, of armed clashes between uh, different tribal, uh, uh, tribal areas with the Houthis. And it seems like it's a perfect opportunity for al-Qaeda to exploit this. Um, is that a concern? Uh I think definitely. I mean, uh, uh, Al-Qaeda is benefiting from uh, simply the, the vacuum and the space left by the government. Even before uh, the Houthis took over Sana'a, the areas where, uh, uh, where it was witnessed that there is some uh, Al-Qaeda presence are only the areas where the government have left space, have left vacuum, and there is no police enforcement and so on. Um, and um, I think simply because of the of the current action by the by the Houthis will give al-Qaeda the perfect opportunity to convince more people and more tribes to be uh, a temporarily, you know, a temporary ally to face this common threat. What about this news that uh, Houthi rebels have taken over these military arms depots and that uh, apparently the U.S. has lost $400 million worth of, of weaponry that it has provided? I guess what are your concerns with that? Well, I mean, I think um, there was always concern within the Yemeni people about um, the exaggeration of uh, arming, uh, you know, uh, or you know, spending a lot of money on 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 an army that we don't actually need. Uh, and uh, what happened is simply that the United States have spent a lot of money into what is called counterterrorism unit forces. Now this uh, uh, this uh, funding and, and 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 weaponizing this unit have simply uh, been handed to the Houthis since they took over uh, took uh, took over Sanaa. Uh, now, what, what's going to happen next? Are the Houthis capable of using uh, heavy weaponry? Uh, I think is, is a question for the uh, for the future to answer. Uh, uh, what I think we sh is more important is what we can learn from this, is that uh, the Yemeni people don't need actually more weapons. They don't need more arms. What they need is is uh, is development. Is the focus on law enforcement on the rule of law, and I think. Uh, if we don't shift the eye of the international community into viewing Yemen as a potential threat where al-Qaeda might hatch from, 
and viewing it into a nation of 25 million where people have aspirations and dreams and are looking for a better future, uh, nothing will change. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Yemen um, Yemen has some of the, uh, in the area, has, like, some of the uh, worst rates of, like, child, you know, child poverty and hunger. Um, and it seems like the United States has spent the past several years just destabilizing the country and making it much worse for people. I mean, the United States, since signing the what was called the GCC in, uh, initiative, this is the agreement that actually uh, uh, forced Saleh to step down in exchange for him uh, receiving immunity, uh, have to, have taken in in into their hands the security file, and they are, were the ones who were in charge of uh, rebuilding and 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 doing a, a, a rehab for the security and military forces. Uh, Unfortunately, the focus of the United States during this period was uh, the counterterrorism efforts. That, that was their usual and major concern. Uh, and unfortunately, not the uh, not the uh, building of um, you know proper law enforcement. And I think uh, the result is what we see today. Now, uh, I wanted to get your reaction too on, on this same issue because back in 2012, uh, before John Brennan was the CIA director, he was the counterterrorism advisor for Barack Obama, and said that, uh, this was his quote, ongoing that, that the U.S. was engaged in ongoing efforts to help Yemen meet the aspirations of its citizens and to counter the violent extremism that threatens our shared security, and, and apparently gave a nod to... Um, and this is not a quote, just gave a nod to the fact that hundreds of millions of dollars were being put into what he called political transition, humanitarian assistance, and development. That this was the largest amount of money that had been poured into Yemen by the United States yet, but it doesn't seem like any of that money has done anything for Yemenis, and, and it's probably a question to you as to where that money even went. Um, I think um, it uh, I mean, I've heard this repeatedly from many U.S. officials, especially uh, security officials who talk about the counterterrorism uh, efforts regarding uh, regarding Yemen. But actually, when we uh, put a, a small comparison into the money that is put into supporting the transition or the political transition and uh, the development aid in comparison to what was spent on what's called counterterrorism efforts, there is a very huge difference uh, 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 simply because I think uh, from one side, the, the the U.S. would spend you know some money on the on on what's called a political transition, but its all usual focus would be on counterterrorism efforts. Regardless of this efforts is destabilizing the country if it's affecting uh, the legitimacy of the Yemeni government. And actually, what the what the U.S. government did during this past three years, which was supposed to be a transitional period. It actually lost. It, it it made the Yemeni people lose their confidence and trust with the central government because simply they feel that uh, the Yemeni government, the Yemeni president, is approving uh, a counterterrorism program that is not working on their favor. That is making them less safe and 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 and, and more afraid. And imagine like you, you you're in a village and you and, and all what you're you're hearing is a drone buzzing over your head 24 hours and you don't know when or where it's going to strike. What confidence would you have in the in the in the Yemeni government? It's actually affecting the relationship 
between the Yemeni people and the Yemeni government before it's affecting the relationship between Yemen as a nation and the United States. And then I guess the last thing I would have for you is, is, is there anything that people in the United States that, that you think uh, were missing uh, as you've seen some of the coverage that comes out of U.S. media outlets? I mean, we didn't get off to a really good start. I know that there were like circulating reports that like the Islamic State was in Yemen, and that was rather infuriating to people who were in Yemen who were saying, well, obviously they're not here. But I guess, is there anything that you would add before we end the interview? Um, well, I mean, I think simply uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people should should uh, should realize that uh, Al Qaeda doesn't have actually real supporters on the ground. Uh, most of the Yemeni people feel they're threatened by uh, by Al Qaeda, and many actually of the attacks that have been taking place by Al Qaeda, the victims have been Yemenis, uh, Yemeni people, uh, and uh, um, and and I think simply because um, and this this simply means that the Yemeni people uh, uh, feel that. Uh, they, they do agree that this is a common uh, a, a common threat. What actually is worth working on is, is this strategy working? And I think this is what we should, should be focusing on. It's time to reevaluate our counterterrorism efforts and actually do ask the people on the ground because the Yemeni leaders do come and go. We saw that in 2011, and we've seen now with Hadi gone from power. The Yemeni leaders do come and go, but the Yemeni nation, the Yemen as a nation, as a people, are the ones who will sustain and are the ones who are living on the ground and uh, and, and actually are the ones who actually uh, uh, worth spending the time and efforts and money on maintaining a fruitful relationship uh, for the future. And so what you're saying is you're going to have to figure out how to work with the Houthis that are, are now in power and I guess it's a really huge question as to how much they're going to be uh, working to, I mean, even provide ideas for the U.S. government as to who they should be targeting with the drones. Like, that would be an, a critical issue, I would think, as well. Um, I mean, I think uh, there's, a, there's a whole question about um, should we actually keep continuing using drones? Uh, did it actually make Yemen safe, um, safer in the in the past uh, three years? These are serious questions. I think we should we should ask. Uh, did it affect actually the the the, the civility of the country? Um, and and I think the simply the answer is 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 clearly no. It did affect actually the civility of the country. It didn't make Yemen much safe, uh, and 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 actually is affecting the 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 safety. Of the region and and the international and the international community, maybe it's time now to look from the other side and see what what actually what's the what do you, the Yemeni people actually really want? Well, thank you, Barai. I appreciate you giving us your time and, and sharing your uh, knowledge. Thank you very much. And hey, everyone. Welcome to the discussion portion of the show. Hey, Rania. How are you doing? Uh, hey, I'm good. How are you? And I wanted to mention before we got going on our stories for the week that we started a Facebook page. So everyone who enjoys the show, I'd encourage you to like. It's over at facebook.com backslash unauthorized disclosure. And so I put that there and you'll be able to find 
uh, well, every week that we do a show, we'll post a, a link to it so you can go listen from that page and, and share it with your friends as well. Uh, and also, I wanted to read one of the reviews we got and just thank this person for uh, writing this. Now, they did this back in July of last year, uh, and and we said a couple shows back that I had just discovered that people were leaving reviews to our podcast. So um, one of the ones that was left uh, says that our podcast gives the context the mainstream media won't give you, and it's from Annie Get Your Gun. Uh, she, uh, this user wrote, Rania and Kevin run an incredible show. They interview guests with extensive expertise who are rarely interviewed by the press, and they confront issues and break down the distortions coming from the mainstream press, providing key context we miss amid the roar of pre-packed sound bites. Their recent coverage of Gaza, in particular, has been incredibly useful. Thanks to them both for all they do. Oh, that was really nice. I hope that was... It sounds genuine and not a result of me threatening listeners, so I, I appreciate I, that. I, I can't imagine you were doing that back then. I mean, I know you were upset with the... Uh, we would have been talking a lot about the assault on Gaza, but um, I don't think you uh, let your rage at <laughs> Israel... Uh, I don't think you turned it against any of our loyal listeners. Oh, okay, good. That, that's good to hear. That, that was a really kind uh, review, so thank you to the person who left that. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's really great, and if you if you want to leave a review, uh, we'd be happy to, you know, uh, acknowledge you on air and, and, and express our gratitude. So for the first story this week, I uh, wanted to bring up this device in... Ferguson, Missouri, that is being tested. And uh, I think we both found this to be uh, really, like, ghastly, but also kind of absurd, too. Uh, The police are testing this alternative to uh, just firing and killing people. You know, so they're instead of just uh, Darren Wilson shooting and killing Michael Brown uh, with multiple shots... They're testing this new device that would attach to a handgun barrel, and it is designed to turn a bullet into a projectile intended to stun but not kill. It's not a taser. It's like you actually put the device on the handgun barrel, and it like transforms a bullet into something less lethal. Well, it's uh, not, it doesn't. It's it's a it's a ping pong ball or something like. Is that what it? I'm I'm still confused. It's like it, the the projectile isn't the size of a bullet. It's a, it's a ping pong ball sized like projectile that sits in front of the muzzle. It's a very confusing looking apparatus, um, but basically it hits your body um, with like blunt force to knock you over and uh, deliver severe debilitating pain, according to the AP write up. Um, but it won't kill you. Uh, I don't. I mean, I mean, and if you look at, there's like a photo of what it does um, on one side of what it does uh, next to like, you know, that little um, target image that they use at the shooting range. Well, it's like next to that they have like what it does to like um, to like another target, and it basically like just like you know leaves a big bruise, I guess. But it looks like it would cause internal bleeding. I don't know. This looks ridiculous. 
the alternative it's, it's from alternative ballistics so so there's a contractor and us Obviously, with government, anytime there's a problem to be solved, you just you you call in like a private contractor who can make money off of the the issue. So rather than police just deciding that they're not going to deploy weaponry against people, it's oh we're still going to have to deploy the weaponry. Let's try to like change it so it doesn't have the same effect that you know a gun's supposed to have. Like guns kill people, but like they want to change the whole thing that a gun does. So the alternative ballistic CEO Christian Ellis says it's an airbag for a bullet. It's an airbag for okay. a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and apparently this device is appealing to Mexico, Egypt, and other countries. There is no police department in the United States that is using this weapon, but um, these countries like Mexico and Egypt where uh, you have these police forces that have been killing people, uh, they uh, find this appealing because... Uh, they recognize, I guess, that they have to kill less people. Um, so odd that uh, the Ferguson Police Department has this thing in common with Mexico and Egypt, but it has been, uh, you know... Shared values. Sh- shared values. <laughs> so, all right. Another thing I wanted to mention, this is, this is more for uh, the sake of amusement. Uh, and we probably have done very few... I talk about very few stories that was uh, straight up amusing, but I wanted to mention this. So everyone, a week ago, the big game, the Super Bowl, Coca-Cola ran this commercial. It was uh, for their Make It Happy campaign, hashtag Make It Happy. And the whole thing of this commercial was apparently that there's so much negativity out in the world and people are just upset and we need to be positive. And so they created this algorithm that was going to take Twitter messages and put a positive spin on those uh, those those Twitter messages. And one of the things that Gawker decided to do, um, some people at Gawker decided to do, is tweet chunks of the introduction to Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf to see what would happen if Coca-Cola picked up these messages, and uh, tried to turn them into something positive. I think this was just really amusing because, first off, I'm kind of tired of corporations and their, you know, their hashtag campaigns on the Internet. Well, who isn't? The editorial lab's director, Adam Posh, created a Twitter bot, Mine Coke, and set it up to tweet lines from Mein Kampf, and then link to them with the Make It Happy tag, which triggered Coca-Cola's bot. <laughs> so it, the Coca-Cola's Twitter feed started to broadcast big chunks of Adolf Hitler's text, um, and it was apparently going out in the form of a smiling banana or a cat playing a drum kit. <sighs> That's kind of brilliant. <laughs> and I just think it's really amusing. And so Coca-Cola, of course, was furious, and I laugh at their fury. <laughs> Quote, the make it happy message is simple. The internet is what we make it, and we hope to inspire people to make it a more positive place. It's unfortunate that Gawker is trying to turn this campaign into something that it isn't. It's unfortunate <laughs> but, that Coca-Cola is trying to turn people's resources into something that they're not. Yeah, ruining all of our water supplies. <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, Poisoning, also, poisoning yeah. third world indigenous communities. But continue. 
But, yeah, I mean, it's important for them to not bother with their exploitation of resources and try to make us all happy and ignore real-world problems that, you know, or or whatever's happening in our own personal lives. You know, it's possible that this negativity is reasonable, but I guess, you know, they saw pervasive online negativity, they want to do something about it, and I think that's just (laughs) so easy, so ripe for someone to come in and just... Yeah, you're asking Mess for with. it. You're asking for it at that point. Good, good again, on you. Good on you, Gawker. But I love this part, and I'm reading from a Guardian story on this. I love this part where the Coca-Cola chief, uh, I, I guess they have a uh, Twitter chief executive at Coca-Cola. When he acknowledged um, some time ago that the company sucks at dealing with abuse and trolls on the platform, and we've sucked at it for years. So, um, and I I wouldn't say they did any better this time around because uh, their reaction is exactly what Gawker would have wanted. And uh, the fact that they took down, basically suspended their little hashtag campaign, I mean, you know, we all get what we wanted, which is good riddance. (laughs) So, okay. Um, On a much more serious note, I wanted to mention this uh, poll from the Pew Research Center on investigative journalists. And uh, it's really just about this one statistic that uh, they uh, talked to a number of journalists. Uh, it was it was done by the Pew Research Center in association with the Columbia University's Toe Center for Digital Journalism. So they, they, they pulled a number of investigative journalists and uh oh as the members of the investigative reporters and editors a nonprofit member organization for journalists and uh they all two-thirds of the people polled 64 percent believe that the u.s government has probably collected data about their phone calls emails or online communications and eight and ten believe that being a journalist increases the likelihood that their data will be collected uh, those who report on national security, foreign affairs, or the federal government are particularly likely to believe the government has already collected data about their electronic communications. 71% say this is the case. And I just I wanted to uh, bring that up on the show uh, uh, as someone who writes about national security all the time, and, and Ronnie, even yourself, I, I'm sure between both of us, we have accepted the fact that the government has probably conducted surveillance on us and has some of our data. Yeah, absolutely. And it's unfortunate that it's become just kind of like a normal thing that that's just a part of life now. And that's I mean, that's that's kind of scary to think about that. Everybody's just kind of where I mean, even I am. I'm just kind of like, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it becomes like this thing where you factor it into your your day to day. And so, like, if you ever had to talk to somebody who was vulnerable, it's like, yeah, well, we would start sneaking around because we know that we can't uh, take any chances that that person uh, is exposed. We're, we're trying to like protect those people, but it also like disrupts what you're doing. And if you're traveling and you're going anywhere, like it puts a limitation on your ability to do your job. Uh, so it's significant. And I don't really necessarily think that the investigative journalists here have accepted this as a, as like a reality that, that they're going to cope with. Mm-hmm. I, I hope they haven't, but I don't know. It is, it is really, um, disturbing to me that, the the country would have this and also like you could have this pervasive um i uh belief among journalists and other people 
here in the U.S. would just be, you know, okay. Like, this is like an effect that's okay with people. It's like, if we're going to fight the quote-unquote war on terrorism, it's okay if all journalists are under surveillance. <laughs> yeah, right? And that's pretty much, that's, that's the mentality. That's how, that's the thinking that goes into this at this point. And to all of them, I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> Just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay. And then on to some rather, sh- uh, actually, more shocking. Uh, so, I will talk about this asshole first who ha- and his view on rape. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's another Republican lawmaker who I think probably raped his wife. That's a big accusation, but I'm really just not sure how why else he would say this. Like, I don't know. So Utah State Representative Brian Green um, was considering a bill to ensure unconscious victims are protected um, under the legal definition of sexual assault. Uh, but he had some concerns <laughs> about this, uh, this, this bill. Um, he, this is what he said. He said, quote, I hope this wouldn't happen, but this opens the door to it. Uh, an individual has sex with their wife while she is unconscious. Or he, if that's possible, I don't know. A prosecutor could just then charge that spouse with rape. Um, yeah, because that is rape, right? <laughs> like, you, if you have sex with a person who's unconscious, regardless of whether they are your wife or not, it doesn't matter. That is rape. Um he went on to say that having sex with someone who is unconscious, unconscious might qualify as rape, quote, in, first da- in a first date scenario. But to me, not where people have a history of years of sexual activity. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure this guy has probably raped his wife while she was I th- sleeping. I don't, know I, why so. else, I don't know why on earth like you would say that unless it's something that you have done. Um, multiple people he he has tried to have sex with multiple people who were unconscious well no i'm sure it was only people he had a history of sexual activity with yeah but that's i mean that's 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 ludicrous like look any i mean that is rape if somebody is not awake if somebody is not conscious to give to give consent um then that is rape like you cannot sleeping with somebody who you can't do that like, that is rape. There's no question about it. There's no doubt, except in the mind of this delusional um, Utah legislator who is, seems to represent uh, some of the more mainstream thinking of the Republican Party in a lot of ways um, as it continues its shift to the far right. Uh, but, yeah, that is really disturbing. It's not the first – obviously, it's not the first lawmaker uh, to say something like that, to to suggest that rape isn't actually rape or that – you know, stop rape in some, some cases is okay. Like that's really disturbing that we have people like that in positions of power in this country. The, um, the, the Republican position that your wife is sex object. Yeah. Your wife is a sex object to like, yeah. I mean, it's just absolutely ludicrous. Um, All right. there are people who think this, I mean, it's, there are people who think that if somebody is married to you, if your woman is married to you, then, you know, it's that patriarchy. Means, yeah. It's like, well, it's the patriarchy. It's also it, it, to an extreme level. Um, and it's also just like, you know, the compl- it's just, it's very dehumanizing to suggest that a woman, like, once they're married to you is, like, your property to do with what you want. Like, has no, like, you, you've, you don't have any control over your body anymore. It belongs to your husband. There are people who think like that, though. So, uh, Representative Brian Green should probably be in jail. <laughs> I'm just disgusted by this. I'd, I'd, I'd send, uh... 
I'd send uh, an officer or someone uh, to probably look into uh, whether he's raping his wife. I think we should put him under surveillance. Yeah. I mean, if we're gonna be, if we're gonna have this big apparatus of surveillance, like, why do we never deploy it against people like this? Honestly. <laughs> uh, anyways. All right. Uh, so, do you want to set up and mention the prison story? Okay, since I'm a lady, I guess I probably should. Um, well, I can I can do it, but I just thought you might like to. Yeah. Well, this is another ridiculous story that Kevin brought to my attention. Um, so. There is this lawsuit that was filed recently against the Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA, um, which is the largest private prison company um, in in the United States, uh, is notorious for all kinds of sadistic levels of abuse um, and killings of inmates. Um, and so recently, um, where was this, in Nashville, Kevin? This happened in Nashville? Yeah, yeah, it no, was no, no, I'm sorry. Tennessee. It was a facility, a facility in Clifton, Tennessee. Um, basically, uh, a, a few women um, have joined in this lawsuit accusing the warden and several security officers at this particular CCA facility um, of, of, oh God, I'm like trying to, I mean, uh, basically forcing them to, to prove that they were on their periods, that they were menstruating. Um, in one case, there was a visitor um, um, who was coming to the prison, uh, and she like had a sanitary napkin um, with her. And the uh, guard, when she was walking into the facility and like had to put her stuff, you know, through security, the guard basically he told her, "You can't have that in here, um, and then you have to change it in front of us uh, to basically prove that you are menstruating." And so she was forced; she had to go to the bathroom uh, where a female officer. Um, watched her get undressed and looked at her bloody pat. I mean, it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. Um, another person tried to enter the prison with two tampons. <laughs> um, and that, and she was, um, basically also presented with the same scenario. She had to, uh, go, like she was told that there was a new policy that prevented her from bringing tampons. Let me, let me repeat that. Tampons into the prison facility. Uh, so she had to go to the bathroom and take out her tampon and replace it with a CCA approved pad, um, in front of a female guard. Uh, I mean, this is just disgusting. I don't understand why our country, I don't, something's wrong with our country. Like that. I mean, that's horrifying. I don't understand how is a tampon or a, a pad in any way, uh, a security threat. This, I mean, it just makes no sense. It seems to be. I mean, they're calling them contraband. I guess they're, they, the guards are saying, oh, but they might be smuggling in contraband, um, is what they're saying. And, th- I mean, I have to read this part. I mean, there's this crazy part where um, the plaintiffs point out that, and then I'm reading this from Jezebel. The plaintiffs point out that according to State Department of State of State, or according to State Department of Corrections policies, visitors should only be required to remove feminine hygiene products in front of guards, quote, if there exists individualized reasonable suspicion to prove that contraband is being brought in. None of the women say that they were ever told the, that they ever were ever told the guards specifically suspected them of smuggling contraband and that while men are biologically capable of concealing contraband in their bodies too, men aren't routinely forced by the staff to show their genitals, which is totally true. Um, this is just disgusting. I don't know, like, why as a guard you would want to even employ a policy like this. Yeah, this is 
this is sex abuse. Yeah. And uh, CCA, this correction corporation, has a long history of being sued for sexual abuse for like some really sick, sick allegations for like rapes of female detainees. They're horrible. They're awful. They're one of the worst corporations in this country, and they're also behind this policy. And they profit off of um, well, putting people in cages. Yes, yeah, that's how they make their money. Including they, most, mostly, um, a lot of these private prison companies profit most off of putting uh, putting immigrants in detention uh, or people suspected of like crossing the border illegally. Um, that's what that's like a majority of their clients or their clients. I'm sorry, of the beds that um, they make money off of. And so, and not that it's okay for like anybody who's been accused of a crime to be treated this way. I don't think it is. But it, just keep in mind that a, a lot of cases, the people who are being subjected to the kind of stuff that CCA is putting them through um, are people who actually haven't been convicted of any crime. <laughs> They're just like waiting to be deported um, or like going to waiting to go through deportation proceedings. So, so speaking of abuse and, and sadism, uh, wanted to talk about this hearing that happened on Capitol Hill around uh, the detention of Guantanamo Bay prisoners and wanted to highlight so specifically i uh, will be dedicating this part this final part of the show to asshole politicians in congress uh because there's just no other way of of uh, of putting it uh we're talking about during this hearing the the point of it was to allow people like uh john mccain and uh, this other senator kelly uh, Ayada and uh, a couple other senators wanted to ask Obama administration officials about their plans and how they've been transferring detainees. And we've mentioned this a little bit on the show, but Republicans are super pissed off at Barack Obama because in the last three months, he has finally started to seriously move people out of that prison. The Pentagon has, I think, it, it's somewhere between like 20 and 40 detainees have actually been transferred out in the last three or four months. Um, it's quite a, quite a large number. Um, but it was long overdue. And so they hold this hearing because they're upset about this and, and they want to take steps to stop it. And they bring uh, the, a representative, they bring an official from the Pentagon. Uh, his name is Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Brian P. McKeon. Um, and they also have an intelligence official from the National Counterterrorism Center to talk about how intelligence agencies are on board. And all of these people, as we have said repeatedly on this show, there was a, re- there was a review task force in 2009 that cleared a number of people for release um, and... Uh, they have been waiting to be transferred because they are cleared. There are 54 prisoners who are still cleared for transfer who are in this facility. So outside of the issue of the other people, um, because there's, um, you know, the the number is down to uh, somewhere uh, in the low, it's just above 100. It's like 120, I think, are remaining in the prison. Um, so, so now you have the issue of like these periodic review boards and people being reviewed again as to whether they can be released. And that's a separate issue from the fact that there are 54 people who 
all of the national security state in this country say are completely innocent. Okay, now, um, just wanted to mention these assholes because <laughs> they're just awful. Um, um, and it's like it's like prejudice. It's like they're clinging to this idea that these are the worst of the worst in this country, and they can't accept that the intelligence agencies were lying, were exaggerating intelligence, uh, that these people aren't who the Bush administration said they were, um, and that you know, in, in some small way, the you know, our, our government is 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 dealing with this fact that these people aren't the people they had said. They were. Um, and so uh, Lindsey Graham, we all hate Lindsey Graham, mm, um, said, my goal is to keep people in jail that represent a national security threat to the United States. Common sense would tell us that if you're still in Guantanamo Bay after all these years, you're probably a high risk. <laughs> Common sense tells us that if you're still in a concentration camp, um, <laughs> like right. 10 years after we put you there, then it probably makes sense that you're there. Yeah. So... So um, I, I want to applaud um, everyone. I, I think these were Code Pink people. Um, the, the person in the audience who just couldn't contain themselves and started shouting, let's have the rule of law back. Most of them are innocent. They were already cleared. This country is disgusting. Blah, blah, blah. What's wrong with the American people? What's wrong with you, America? And then got, <laughs> and then got kicked out of the hearing. And like that person, I don't know who you are, but you were speaking for me. Yeah. And, all those other people who did not want to continue to listen to Lindsey Graham talk. Uh, but then he continued and he said, uh, just common sense tells you if you're still in jail after all these years, you've had, a new, you've had numerous review boards that you're probably dangerous in the eyes of the people who say you stay there. Or not, because McKeon replied, actually, several of the people were cleared or approved for transfer six years ago. We just have not found a place to send them. So no, Lindsey Graham, you don't have a fucking clue. Yeah, no, Lindsey Graham is terrible. And you're choosing to not have. I, I I actually believe you're deliberately choosing to not understand that about half of the people there should have been gone a long time ago. Like no discussion, no debate should have been gone. Okay, now um, I want to. Lindsey Graham is an evil neocon, which is probably a little bit redundant, but. Uh, but I want to also talk about um, the last thing here um, is. Uh, this this new senator, Tom Cotton, who... Which I still don't believe is his real name, because that's a stupid name. Anyways. <laughs> if you have any listeners named Tom Cotton, I'm sorry. So, you'll like this. He began his question... Uh, okay, by the way, Tom Cotton was a platoon leader in Baghdad, and he was a captain in Afghanistan. And uh, he wanted to try and prove that there is no national security reason why we should close Guantanamo, that, that it is not inflaming people around the world and making them want to attack us, wherever we might be. Mm-hmm. So uh, he asked, how many recidivists are there at Guantanamo Bay? Now, if you're scratching your head because you're like, that's a dumbass question, they can't be recidivists they because they haven't been released. That was the thing that McKeon was thinking because he said, I'm not sure I follow the question. So then Cotton said, how many at Guantanamo Bay are engaging in terrorism or anti-American incitement? (laughs) To which McKeon is still like furrowing his eyebrows trying to be like, is this guy serious? And he says, they're pretty locked down. (laughs) I mean, like, what do you think they're going to do? And so he said, none, because they're detained, because they only engage in that kind of recidivism overseas. Ooh, that was a good one. You got us. (laughs) Jesus so 
this was a whole thing about the hearing about recidivism. It's mostly bullshit because like there is next to no data that confirms like any of these people have been recidivists. Um, like like they've gone and like reengaged in the fight. Like there, we don't have publicly available data for these people. Like we just have numbers. Also, and- this is pre-crime. Even this conversation in general, like we would never accept this. I would think not. I think this conversation has happened before in the United States criminal in regard to the u.s criminal justice system um we're like oh but like if you let them out they'll 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 commit a crime again that's pre-crime you can't like and i mean not to mention the fact that these people haven't been charged with any crime to begin with so it's like that you can't hold people indefinitely because if you let them out you think they might commit a crime even regardless of whether that's true or not and you're right i mean it's bullshit but even if it wasn't bullshit it's still not a sound argument and it complete it's like a complete violation of civil liberties and you know what like if anybody is going to commit a crime it's going to be because of the shit you put them through for over a decade now let's talk about the propaganda value how many detainees were at guantanamo bay on september 11 2001 <laughs> How many were there on October 2000 when Al Qaeda bombed the USS? Did he Cole? say that? Did he say that? Yeah, this is how he's going. You're this kidding. Is, That's yeah. not a parody. What about 1998 when they bombed our embassies? In 1993 when they bombed the World Trade Center, or 1979 when they took over our embassy in Iran? You know, like he just went on and on, and of course he wanted this serious defense department official to play his game and answer no to all his questions so then he said and this is the thing i'm gonna read this whole thing and you're gonna have a reaction to probably all of it but let me just get through the whole thing here and then we'll be done with tom cotton's ask for today islamic terrorists don't need an excuse to attack the united states they don't attack us for what we do they attack us for who we are It's not a a security decision. It is a political decision based on a promise the president made on his campaign. To say that it is a security decision based on propaganda value that our enemies get from it is a pretext to justify a political decision. In my opinion, the only problem with Guantanamo Bay is there are too many empty beds and cells there right now. We should be sending more terrorists there for further interrogation to keep this country safe. As far as I'm concerned, every last one of them can rot in hell. But as long as they don't do that, they can rot in Guantanamo Bay. You know, <laughs> I I think that Tom Cotton hates Muslims for who they are. No, no, he definitely does, because his history lesson is that none of these groups are different from one another. They're all cut from the same cloth, and they're all evil. Dude, what uh, about the groups that America, like, funded and supported? I mean, what about those groups? Like, right. I mean, are those, like, what about, I mean, it's so funny to me, these people... I mean, this guy is just, I think that this this guy just sounds ignorant, because these, like, these are embarrassing arguments that, like... But the thing that's remarkable is, before you marginalize him, the whole hearing was silent after he said this. There was no nervous laughter. There, like, the protesters, like, just kind of, like, sat there. And, like, I actually believe this is what most U.S. politicians say in private. Like, something to this effect. I mean... We, we we drug these people. We put them in stress positions. We beat them. We de- we deprive them we, of medical care. We force food up their asses. Yeah, we sexually torment them. Like we have officers that have sexually tormented them. They we uh, you know we uh, desecrate their Korans in front of them, um, and that's not something that upsets any of these people. They do not care. They I I think they believe. And actually, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin was the person who asked questions after Tom and. 
And his thing was actually, I could argue, more ridiculous than Top Cotton's because he said, that's, a, that's what I used to feel. But he said, I went and visited Guantanamo. And you know what I saw when I went to Guantanamo? That our soldiers there need to be helped out because they're suffering abuse. Yeah, I really, that argument is so irritating. Like, that that's the argument that works here, is our soldiers are suffering abuse because they're having to abuse people. Like, I get that. I get that there's, like... No, actually, Rania, let me correct you. Let me correct you. If your child... This is what Manchin said. If your child was in the military and a guard in that detail, I would not ask anybody's children to be in that position guarding in that type of condition there because I've seen the abuse that the prisoners have on our guards. I couldn't believe it. I'd like to see a few of them in a... And then he said about the prisoners, I'd like to see a few of them in a United States hard-imprisoned to see if they change their attitude. I know we could do a little different job here than they're doing over there. Yeah, I highly doubt that. A lot of the shit that happens at Guantanamo happens at Supermax facilities around the country. Um, That's insane. I mean, these people are just completely disconnected and have no... They're just like, they don't... If they know, they don't care because because terrorists... Um, in their minds are, you know, that that word is just interchangeable with Muslims. They're extremely racist and bigoted individuals who have, like, who just don't see these people as human. They see them as complete monsters. Because, I mean, and this is a very, da- I mean, this is very dangerous territory. It, I think it goes along, and we can talk about this in maybe our next episode, but I think it goes along with, like, you know, the way that... It, it, we've reached a very scary point, I think, where where the anti-Muslim sentiment is so severe um, in this country, especially, and I mean, and it's not just in the country, but I mean, in the minds of lawmakers and the minds of people in positions of power who are making decisions that like, they're just completely subhuman and their lives don't matter. And that's very, I mean, that's very unsettling, very, very unsettling because I think that that that's not a marginal opinion. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's really frustrating to me that, that the facts like, they're, like they show, matter. they don't matter. Like, like they don't matter. They like. The, this this these people are fringe lunatics like they should be they should be fringe lunatics but they're not no they like they're allowed to convince and 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 whip a majority of americans into believing and you know i guess my last thing that i would say is it, it is the fault of president barack obama because he he let this get this way. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you start off by saying close Guantanamo and then you don't want to take the political risk to close it. And he's dragged it out for six years, closing it. And now, you know, cause we had Jason Leopold on as our guest last week, I guess to sort of like bring this all back and, and close it. I would just say, it's like, you know, it really doesn't look like you're committed to closing the prison. If you're taking this long and the longer you take to do it, the less likely it is that you're going to close the the prison. Man, this is, it's just, we have a very sadistic culture. We need help. All right. I don't know what to say. I, I don't know who can save us, though, but. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But um, I think that, that, yeah. That does it, I think, for the show. I don't, any, anything else, Rania? Yeah, sorry to end on such a down note, um, but, you know, we'll be back with next week and maybe have some more positive stories like Coke, like Coke would appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, Tom Cotton can keep his mouth shut. I still don't believe that that's a real name. That sounds like that sounds like a cartoon character, like Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton and his guns. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Anyways, all right. Well, everybody have a great week, and we'll be back next week.